Have you ever gone through a time in your life when God seemed absent? When it seemed as if he was, he was not with you and, and at work at all? I think we all can, can relate to that, right? We've all been there at one time or another. And the question we need to ask during these times is, how are we to think about God? And how are we to respond during these times? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about in this series that we are starting today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you're not sure where Esther is, it's right before the big book of Job. And if you're not sure where the big book of Job is, it's right before the even bigger book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible. So turn to the middle of your Bible, flip back past Job, and you'll be in Esther. The book of Esther. I know that some of you all are familiar with this book because you've either studied it. I know that our ladies did a study of Esther a while back. Maybe you've seen the movie, Night with the King, right? I know uh, others of you have read through this book a few times, and I know some of you remember the details from this great book because it is truly a great story. But I also know that there are some here in this second service, like they were in the first, who are not familiar with the story at all. And if this is you, it's good that you're here, because for the next nine weeks, we're going to study through this great book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I have entitled this series, The Invisible Hand of God. And maybe some of you are scratching your head at that title right now, but believe me, after we are finished with today's sermon, and certainly by the end of this series, you will know why I have entitled this sermon that. Before we jump in to study this book, let me take just a few moments to give you a bit of background about the book. I always like to do this when we start a new book, and it'll help you moving forward. We're going to start with who wrote it. Who is the author of Esther? Well, the answer is we don't know for sure. According to Jewish tradition, the author of the book is Mordecai. He is one of the characters in the story. We'll be introduced to him later on. There is no reason to believe that Mordecai could not have written this book, seeing how he was an eyewitness to everything that occurred, or he had direct contact with the eyewitnesses. But we don't know for sure. Whoever the writer was, we know he was a gifted storyteller. You're going to find that out as we move through this book. The audience. The original audience of the book of Esther was probably Jewish exiles in Persia. And the reason why is because this book centers in on a couple of Jewish exiles in the Persian Empire removed from Jerusalem. The date, Esther is one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament, thought to be written around 465 B.C. And the type of book, Esther is a historical narrative. In our English Bibles, it is the last book in the history section of the Old Testament before we get to the poetry section. In the book of Esther, we get an idea of what life was like for Jews in exile in Persia, removed from 
Jerusalem. It's very unique in that way and has other unique elements we'll learn in just a moment. The purpose of the book. The book is all about the providence of God. Now, remember back in the book of Acts, we talked about the providence of God and what it means. We said that God works in one of two ways, through miracles and through providence. A miracle is when God breaks from the natural process. He disrupts the flow of normal life to accomplish his purposes. Providence is when God works in and through his natural world. We see him do both in scripture, but for the most part, God works through providence. Though you have him parting the seas and and sending angels and healing the lame and raising the dead, primarily we read about this person doing this and this person doing that and this, this and that happening, all sorts of seemingly unrelated things, but we know they're not, right? To accomplish God's will. That's his providence. Still supernatural, right? Because God is at work. It's just him using natural events, working in and through the world and the people he created to accomplish his purposes. Now, in most books of the Bible, you have God working in both ways, through miracles and providence. In Esther, he only works through providence, okay? Very, very important to remember that. There are no miracles in this book. This book is all about how God is at work through providence, through people, both good and bad, through the best of circumstances and the worst of situations for his purposes, for the sake of his people and for his own glory. Over and over again throughout this book, we are going to see God at work behind the scenes, yet in obvious ways. As we study this book, we're going to see God's invisible hand of providence. J. Vernon McGee said this of the book. Check out this quote. He said, in the book of Esther, we see God standing in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. Matthew Henry said this, though the name of God be not in Esther, the finger of God is, directing many minute events, bringing things to his own end. So that's the the, the purpose of the book. It's written to showcase the providence of God in the lives of his people. Let's look at a few unique elements of the book. We just mentioned one. The name of God is never mentioned in this book. No prophecy, no worship, no prediction of a Messiah to come, no mention of heaven or hell, no divine commands, nothing spiritual at all in this book on the surface. Just below the surface, however, that's a completely different story. Again, the book is all about God's providence. We're going to see that over and over again. Another unique element of this book is that there is no mention of this book anywhere else in the Bible. The rest of the Bible has nothing to say about the book of Esther. The other writers in Scripture are silent when it comes to this book. This book is also unique because it's named after a woman. There are two books in the Bible named for women. The book of Esther and what's the other one? Ruth. Very good reminding us that women play a key role in God's kingdom story. And we are certainly going to see that in this book. Also, 
Though two Jews are the main two characters in this story, another unique thing about this story is that it takes place away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, from the priesthood, in a foreign and pagan land. Like we said a moment ago, this story is taken from the history of the Jews living in exile in the Persian Empire, away from Jerusalem. That is another unique element in this Old Testament book. But there is a practical side to that. We learn in this book that God has not forgotten about his people in Persia. That's a great reminder for us, by the way, isn't it? Believers, you may be at the point in your life when it feels as if God is absent from your life. Listen, if you belong to him, if Christ is the Lord of your life, though we struggle, though at times it feels as if we are apart from him, exiled from his presence and far from his favor, get this, God has not forgotten about us. It's one of the main lessons we learn in the book of Esther. Well, let's get going. Esther chapter 1. I want to start by just sharing this with you. As I have grown in godliness over the years, my view of God and who he is and how he is at work in the world has gotten much, much bigger. Is that the case with you? Pray that it is. Yeah. When I was little, I thought God could not work through people unless they obeyed him. I even had certain people tell me, God will not use you if you do not love him and do what he says. But what I've learned since becoming a Christian, as I've studied through the Bible over and over again, I have learned that God works through people both good and bad. He works through the acts of the righteous as well as the acts of the wicked for his purposes and for his own glory. Now, we should not want God to use us in our wickedness, right? and work through our disobedience to accomplish his will. But if we are disobedient, if we do wicked and evil things, God can and does use that in spite of us. And we see that here crystal clear in the book of Esther. We see that here in Esther chapter 1. Today we are going to see, here's the title of the sermon, the providence of God in a pagan Persian palace, working through a pagan and Persian king and queen. But before we look at God's providence, I want you to notice first that God seems completely absent from this story. I want you to see that. Notice first the apparent absence of God during the rule of a powerful king. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So here our story begins, not with God, not with the prophet of God, a priest or a godly king, but a man by the name of Ahasuerus, better known by his Greek name, Xerxes. Who has heard of Xerxes? Anybody? Yeah. He was a great and powerful Persian king. 
And in this day, at this time, no human possessed more earthly power than Xerxes. He was very wealthy, very affluent. There's a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus. He is also nicknamed the father of history, who wrote a lot about Xerxes. So a lot of the extra-biblical historical information that I'll give you on Xerxes comes from him and other Greek historians like him, okay? Notice we are told in Scripture, though, in verse 1, that Xerxes reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. We learn from history that his father was King Darius, another legendary king who ruled for 30 years, and he is the one who expanded this kingdom through conquering and assembling nations together. And he hands over this kingdom to his son. And to give you an idea of how big this kingdom was, check out this map. All the, all the area outlined in red. That's the Persian Empire. And I want you to notice that Jerusalem is within that empire. That's very, very important for you to remember that detail. Also, it's important to remember that because it was so vast, Xerxes' kingdom was made up of multiple nations and peoples. Peoples of different races, different ethnicities, different languages, different religious beliefs. That's very, very important moving forward to realize that because as we move on through this book, we're going to be introduced to a few characters from different cultural backgrounds who do not get along. They are at odds with one another within this kingdom. We're going to get to that later. But this is a powerful king. We are told at this time, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa in the citadel or the palace there. And if you're wondering where Susa is, it's modern-day Iran. We had Sam in our first service. Many of y'all know Sam from Iran, he and his family. And I said, so here you go, Sam. We have God at work in the scriptures in Iran. Okay? He's at work there. A Bible story from Iran. All right? That's where these events are taking place. And in this great palace, this great king sat on this great throne, and he ruled over this great land like a god. And many looked to him in that way. And again, notice, we are a ways away from Jerusalem. We are far removed from God's people at this time and the beliefs and practices of God's people. And it seems as if we are far removed from God's presence. We are in the presence of this earthly king who sat on an earthly throne as a god, but it seems as if the true God is vacant from this story. Like we said a moment ago, this story really forces us to ask the question of whether or not God is at work in this time in history outside of his covenant people, outside of his appointed place in Jerusalem. Is God at work in other places at this time in other nations? Is he present in this pagan Persian court? Is he mindful of, does he care about the actions of this powerful, prominent, affluent, and godless king? Well, we're going to learn in this book, the book of Esther, that the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he is. We're going to learn in this book that God is everywhere, like we learn all throughout the Bible, right? And he is at work everywhere. He is at work, though, behind the scenes at all times 
in all places, through good and wicked, through the best of circumstances, in the worst of situations, for his purposes, for the good of his people, and for his own glory. He is at work beyond Jerusalem in a pagan and godless land like this one. Believers, there is great application to be made by us here today when we read this. Listen, when times get tough, when you go through dark and difficult times, when things are happening outside of your control, and you wonder if God is there, if he cares, if he's at work at all, If you're wondering where God is in the midst of difficulty, know that he is with you. He does care. He is there and he is at work. He reminds us of this over and over again in his word. Especially at times when it seems as if he is absent, those are the times we find he is very much at work and should be trusted. But so far in this story, it seems as if God is absent. From the scene. Notice the next point the apparent absence of God during a Persian palace party. Look at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he, Ahasuerus, gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So what do you do when you have all the power, all the money anyone could ever want? You throw a party, right? So what he does, and this is not just any party, this was the party to end all parties. Just three years into his reign, Ahasuerus gave a feast to end all feasts. He, he gave it for his officials and servants. They come from all around The army of Persia and Media were there. All the nobles and governors from all the provinces were there before him. Thousands of people. Now, why throw a party? Well, Scripture doesn't say specifically, but this could have been the feast that the historian Herodotus, remember I mentioned him earlier, the father of history, referred to, that was thrown because Xerxes wanted to go to war with Greece. You see, his dad had gone to war with Greece and had lost. And so Xerxes wanted to do what his dad didn't do, which was go to war with Greece and defeat them. And so many believe that this was this feast that Herodotus refers to. And Xerxes is throwing this feast to show the leaders that he's got the wealth and the resources needed to go to war. Others believe he was throwing this particular feast to serve the leaders in other parts of the empire to keep them happy so he could stay in control because it was a big, big empire, right? He would do this at times. Could have been one of those two reasons, maybe both, but the one thing we know for sure, get this, is that Xerxes threw this party to show everyone how great he was. Look at verse 4. We're told he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Uh, That's six months. He threw a party for six months. Some commentators have said that the military generals and soldiers and leaders and rulers in these provinces could have totaled 10 to 15,000. So picture this. There are ten to 15,000 people partying for six months, eating the finest foods, drinking the best drink, enjoying the riches of the king, tax dollars at work, right? Can you imagine the cost of something like that? 
Xerxes had money. He had money. Look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after this six-month party, he opens it up. And he invites more people for seven more days. All the people in the surrounding areas. He, he invites them in, both great and small, to come and party. And though it was in the court of the garden of the king's palace, this wasn't a casual grill out with burgers and dogs. Okay? Look at verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. I mean, this was one swanky event. How many of you have sterling silver curtain rods and marble pillars in your courtyard? How many of y'all have a courtyard, right? Not very many of us, right? Can you imagine the common folks attending this party? Into verse 6. And also couches of gold. How many of y'all have couches of gold at home? Outside in your courtyard that you don't have, right? No. And silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Amazing. Verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. They're drinking royal wine. I imagine that was the best you could get in this day, and they're drinking it out of golden vessels. Can you imagine being a common person at this time, drinking royal wine out of a gold goblet? This was amazing. And how much did they have to drink? all they wanted it was an open bar with the best wine in gold vessels look at verse 8 and drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired this was a drunken godless gathering that's probably why the women were not present in this part of the palace we're told in verse 9 that queen vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to king ahasuerus he had quite a few so he's allowing for his ladies to attend a separate party and i read one of the reasons the guys and gals would separate is if the guys knew the party was going to get wild Greek historian Plutarch claims that Persian monarchs would dine with their wives unless the party became wild. Then the wives would be sent away to shield them from the debauchery to follow. And the concubines and the dancing girls would come in and take their place. That's according to Plutarch. Probably the case here, right? So, so notice here that Ahasuerus is showing off his wealth, pleasing his male guests. This was a drunken, gluttonous, godless, possibly even, probably was, sexually immoral gathering that lasted six months and seven days. And there was worship going on. Believe me, there was. It wasn't God-honoring worship, but there was worship of self, worship of creation, worship of excess, and I'm sure there was worship of Ahasuerus as well as he sat up on his throne and looked on. 
It was a wicked, godless gathering. And as we read that, we really need to stop here and ask, where is God? Where is God in all this? He's never mentioned. No fire falls from heaven. No prophets show up and pronounce judgment on these leaders. No no miracles, no nothing. No one repents and cries out to God, nothing like that. How many of you, this sounds like your life? Not the godless gathering. But you're thinking to yourself, I've never seen a miracle. I've never heard God's voice audibly from the clouds. An angel has never appeared to me and told me something directly. You look at your life, and you look at the world around you, and it feels as if God is absent. You look at your world around you, and it feels as if God is absent. Wicked men sit up on their thrones in places of authority while you just grind it out, trying to get by in life, and it doesn't feel as if God is there and he has shown up for you at all to come to your rescue. We're going to learn in this story that though it seems as if God is absent, he is very much present in this situation. He is present and he is at work, though it seems that there is very little to nothing being done here in this chapter. We're going to learn as we continue on with this chapter and continue on with this great book that God is there. What's going to happen next in this chapter is going to influence everything else that happens in this book and ultimately in redemption history. But notice at this point, God continues to remain in the shadows. Next point. Notice in verses 10 through 12, you have the apparent absence of God in the disobedience of a bold queen. Look at verses 10 through 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a nice way of saying he was drunk, he commanded Mehumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Sarkis. You just have to say them real fast and with confidence. No one will correct you because they don't know how to say it either. All right? That's, that's the trick there. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Well, we learn here in verses 10 through 11 that these guys have had way too much to drink. And as some of you know, drinking too much, abusing alcohol, doesn't make you smarter, does it? Many who drink, who have had too much to drink, think that they are, but everyone around them disagrees, right? In this passage, we have a bunch of drunk guys who start making very bad decisions, which should be a no-brainer to us. I don't think the opposite has ever been said. You know, a group of men have too much to drink and they find a cure for cancer. That doesn't happen, right? And you'll notice here in your study guide that you have in your bulletin this next week, you're going to be talking about during your your study time about the dangers of abusing alcohol, the dangers of excess when it comes to alcohol and how it impairs judgment for those in leadership as well. So here we have the king. And I sort of picture him at this moment kind of hanging off the side of his throne with his crown kind of cocked to the side of his head. And he suddenly says, hey, I got an idea, you know? 
It's always bad when you hear that. Let, let's bring Vashti in before us with her royal crown, and in addition to showing these people how, how great I am by providing this great feast and the best wine in my lavish palace, I'll show them how beautiful my queen is, and I'll let all of these drunk men just gawk at her. Not a good idea, guys, right? Not a good idea. This is not something I believe Xerxes would have done had he been sober. So he sends these seven eunuchs who were messengers to his queen. And eunuchs, by the way, they were castrated men who served the king and the queen and in the king's harem. And because of their physical state, they were trusted in the presence of the women of the king. And I'm not trying to be too graphic. That's just a little context for you, okay, to help you understand why he trusted these men. So he sends them to Queen Vashti's party to bring her in. He probably wanted Vashti to be the grand finale. And how does Vashti respond? Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So he is drunk and angry, not a good combo. Now, the king's decision to bring Vashti in was surprising, like we've already said. This is not something he would have done sober. But get this, the queen's refusal is also shocking, knowing who Xerxes is. This is a very brave decision that Vashti makes. This is not something most queens would have done, but she did. And though we don't see it here, though God seems absent from the story, again, we are going to learn in the coming weeks that God is at work in and through Ahasuerus' drunken mistake and Vashti's brave refusal. But before we get into that, notice here, the king is upset. I mean, think about it. He's throwing this lavish party to show everyone how great he is in the empire and how powerful he is, and he can't even get his wife, the queen, to obey him. It was a huge mistake on his part, very brave decision by Vashti that God's going to use. Last point. Notice also the apparent absence of God in the quick removal of an unruly queen. What's the king going to do? Well, apparently he doesn't know at first. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mimikin, a.k.a. Larry, Moe, and Curly. The king's drunk advisors. And the reason I say that is because they do not give him good counsel here. But, but they were the best he had. Seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So he brings these guys out. His, his big guns, the best and the brightest, well-versed in the law and judgment. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> He asks, according to the law, what is to be done 
to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimikin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So the king asked these guys, in accordance with the law, what should be done? And this guy named Mimikin steps up and speaks up, and he makes it all very, very personal. I imagine that Mimikin may have had a difficult time with his wife at home because he's really, really concerned about what's going on here. He says, man, if word gets out that, that Vashti refused the king, and my wife hears about it, she'll never listen to me again. I have a tough time enough with her. That's in the Hebrew. But he makes it very, very personal, I imagine, right? He's basically saying, you've got to make an example out of Vashti. We don't want word getting out that she has acted in this way and that she got a pass. If our wives hear about it, there will be contempt, he says. There will be wrath and plenty. It'll be anarchy. Please, king, for our sakes, for my sake, do something. Verse 19, he says, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. And listen, if it was written in this way, amongst the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it was written in stone. Nothing could be done to change it. No going back on it. So he says, let it be written that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. So in other words, since she refused to come to you, when you summon her, let her never be allowed in your presence again. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Underline that, it's almost prophetic. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike, for Mimikin's sake, right? Verse 21. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And this is a horrible decree, by the way. Every man being master in his household in this context is terrible. Far cry from what God calls for us to be, men, in the homes and loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And knowing the kind of guys that we're dealing with here in this pagan palace, I imagine there were horrible abuses in the home after this decree went out. It would have been very, very difficult to be a wife in this context. But I want you to notice something here. Again, 
though it seems as if God is completely absent from the scene, we're going to see as we move forward that he is very much present and very much at work. He is at work in this pagan palace through this godless ruler and wicked council and this disobedient queen and this unjust decree. Look again at verse 19. We're told the law put into place in this pagan court said that Vashti was to be replaced. It said that the king was to give her royal position to another better than she. And we're going to find out that's exactly what happens. After Vashti exits the scene, a woman by the name of Esther is going to enter in and she is going to play a vital role in God's kingdom story. Believers, God is at work. To close out this morning, I want to call your attention to something. I want you to notice something that's very, very important. I want you to notice that though this chapter opens with a seemingly great, impressive and powerful ruler and the apparent absence of God, I want you to notice by the end of this chapter we have a drunken and foolish king who has trouble managing his own household and a sovereign God who is at work providentially through the folly of this king to accomplish his own good purposes. And his purposes include, get this, you know it, sending a true and better king who is coming to rule right. A king much, much greater than Xerxes In this story, we're going to see God at work providentially to save and preserve his people. And as we continue reading through the Bible, we see that through this people comes this better king, King Jesus. He is completely different from Xerxes, superior in every way. Though Xerxes was the son of the great king Darius, get this, Jesus is the son of the one true God of the scriptures. Though we learn that Xerxes was the most powerful man on the earth in his day, Jesus is God the Son who made the heavens and the earth and rules over all creation forever. Though Xerxes liked to sit up on his royal throne in Susa, get this, Jesus got off his throne and emptied himself and came down from a place much, much higher than the palace in Susa. He came from heaven to earth for us. Though Xerxes thought he was a man who became God, get this, Jesus is truly God who became a man. Xerxes never tasted poverty and humility. King Jesus tasted both to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse alcohol and women. Jesus used his power to accomplish our salvation through his life, death, burial, and resurrection so that men and women would not be drunk with wine but filled with the Holy Spirit. Xerxes and his father before him brought people together by killing their enemies. Listen, Jesus established his kingdom by dying for his enemies so that he could save them. And the work that this great king, King Jesus, has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection can be applied to your life today if you would just swear your allegiance to him. If you would make him your Lord today. If you're here today and you're not trusting in this great 
and wonderful King, King Jesus. If you're here and Christ is not the Lord of your life, I urge you, make him your Lord today. Give your life up and over to him. Forsake your sin. Make Christ Lord and be saved. Let's pray.